Well. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Esoteric Artifacts. It's been a while since we've been here. Um, we've got some updates for you all. Um, some big news, actually. Um, Glenn here uh, just landed a new job. Uh, he's going to be working in the quantum computing field. And um, so he's going to be moving in uh, a little while. So we've kind of been trying to figure out the logistics of how we're going to continue to do, do the show and really just the format and nature of the dialogue that we want to be having. And we really feel like we want to bring you more dense content, uh, stuff that we don't want to be talking about what everybody else, what all the frequent content creators that are publishing, you know, multiple times weekly or even just weekly are. Um, weekly was getting a little bit tough for our schedules as it is. Um, I started a company recently and uh, Glenn's going to be having some changes here with his new job. So, yeah, I think it's also going to play a little bit nicer into a bit more of a conversation and the aspects about some of these, you know, topics that we're touching on and things happening in the world instead of so much of a, you know, newscaster, here's what happened, play by play, replay essentially of what's been going on. And like Bosch mentioned, we're going to I'm going to be moving and so we'll be switching things up a little bit and hopefully we won't have too many issues, but bear with us for the next couple of episodes while we kind of work through some of these more nuanced changes that'll be happening. Yeah, so expect content um, maybe once a month, maybe twice a month. Um, you know, we are still going to try to get some interesting guests on here, um, whether they're at Glenn's location or at my location. Um, we're just going to be recording uh, remotely. And uh, either way, you know, this is not a live show, so we're going to chop it up and uh, get it out to you guys. But um, we've been getting some really great feedback as well from people. And um probably going to be looking at doing some uh, shorter clips as well, uh, including just some uh, more bite-sized uh, pieces of information on very specific topics. But we've also uh, received some viewer questions, which is uh, kind of cool. Um, and we definitely encourage viewer questions. Honestly, no matter how complex, uh, we're eager to tackle it, uh, even if we have to do a little bit of research ourselves to actually... Uh, able to answer these questions uh that is the kind of thing that we want to do here yeah that's really the point of this show is kind of to try and give some of our insight and feedback into some of these areas that like we have experience and expertise in and so you know especially with these viewer questions that we have here today like that's exactly what we're looking for in terms of what it is that you guys want to hear more about yeah and so we've got some pretty great ones and one of the, they really tied in with what we wanted to talk about anyway. So it worked out great. Um, but the first one was essentially, and I'm going to paraphrase here, um, was really just asking about how long do we think the global impact uh, economically from COVID uh, lockdowns and just this, how, how long do we expect this recovery period to look from a global perspective? And of course, the answer to that is not going to be the same across the board uh different countries are going to recover at different speeds um and the other part of the question was essentially um what can the united states what what actions can the united states specifically take to alleviate that yeah and i mean in particular this question addresses you know a whole number of different topics that have been happening 
over the past few years, particularly in terms of the pandemic and stimulus spending and global supply chain shortages, and obviously the Russia-Ukraine conflict as well. There's a lot of different pieces that are all encapsulated within this question. And I feel like my knee-jerk reaction, initially at least, is not quickly. This is definitely going to be a years-long process, particularly from a global perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people would feel comforted to hear that, hey, this is all going to be fine, you know, in a year or two from now. Uh, You know, sadly, I don't believe that's the case. I don't think you believe that's the case, Glenn. Definitely Um, not. And this has really been building up into something much greater. And a lot of the reason for that doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic, actually. It has to do with the circumstances that we found ourselves in leading up to the pandemic and some of the policy actions that we've taken in the aftermath of 2008. We've talked about some of this stuff in past episodes, but um, the primary thing, like Glenn is uh, talking about here, is the responses that we have made so far. Have they been effective? Have they been the wisest course of action? I would argue no. Did they act as a stopgap measure? to prevent a total economic collapse of sorts? Yes, they did. Um, Were there probably better ways to have done that? Absolutely. Um, The methods that were used by both the federal government and by the Federal Reserve, the monetary and fiscal policy side of this, uh, really just lended to propping up the status quo, if you will, uh, ensuring that all of these systems that had built, built upon equity markets and Uh, a number of other uh, elements of our economy that have grown increasingly relevant in uh, this era. Yeah, I mean, particularly with this, you know, coming out of this, you know, pandemic period to some degree, as far as lockdowns and supply chain issues, like we really haven't had anything to sort of stifle the growth, economically speaking, for, you know, nearly since 2008, realistically speaking. We've seen ridiculous growth, particularly over the past five to 10 years. And, you know, the pandemic was the first thing that really sort of stymied that. And so to an extent, things like the stimulus packages that were sent out were hugely impactful and did help a lot of people while at the same time propping up a system that was essentially already seeing ridiculously high growth year over year. Mm -hmm. Um, And then often overlooked factor that I don't think we've talked about yet on this show is um, money velocity, uh, which is a concept that determine, it describes um, how often dollars change hands within our economy. Um, that number has been going down historically for quite some time now. I, I, I haven't looked at those numbers in recent years, actually, but I just know that uh, prior to the pandemic, we were at a historic low in money velocity. And that actually has a huge impact on the government as well because uh, transactions occurring result in tax revenue. So even if the size and scale of business is growing and there's economic growth, if people are transacting less frequently, that's less revenue for the government and that's a concern for the government. Yeah, and I mean, that definitely influences the economic policies and for lack of a better way to put it, the actual numbers that they're seeing. So like we've touched on in previous episodes, like the CPI index is typically how inflation is tracked and monitored over time. While it does technically do that to some degree, 
it does lag behind current events and isn't really representative of the actual day-to-day expenditures of everyday Americans. Yeah, and um, yeah, just to briefly touch on that, I definitely encourage you to listen to our last episode. It really covered the totality of uh, some of this subject, but real inflation is obviously not uh, reflective of CPI. In certain parts of the country, it is probably lower. In most parts of the country, it is a fair bit higher. And um, it's really just dependent on cost of living. Anybody that lives in a urban, especially coastal city, probably knows this, probably sees this. Um, I went to a fast food place just uh, a day ago and um, ordered like a simple meal that I had ordered. I had always ordered the same thing from this fast food chain for probably the last 15 years. I hadn't been there uh, in probably like three years though. And I was genuinely taken aback when they read the price out to me. I was like, hang on, there's something wrong here. Like you, you put something on there that wasn't supposed to be there, right? No, it was just actually reflective of the increase in costs. And um, yeah, so just going back to that question, realistic timeline for the U.S. And we um, this kind of this ties into a number of subjects that we've talked about. Production is a big one, right? Um, production is not easily ramped up, and uh, you know the semiconductor industry in particular is one that you hear a lot of conversation about. The chip shortage. Yeah, and I mean, the chip shortage in particular is one of these areas that is extremely difficult, not only from a manufacturing perspective, but also from a technical perspective, that there's, like we're talking about, there's a variety of factors that influence it. But the bottom line is, in order to get more of these chips, you do have to ramp up manufacturing. You have to physically make more of these chips. And in particular, this kind of ties in both to the United States, but also the global supply chain and global inflation, as well as what we're seeing here in the U.S., in that it's not something that is easily remedied. And so particularly with the chip shortage, the United States historically has not made many of these chips. Most of these chips have been imported from some from Europe, but primarily from areas in Taiwan and other Asian areas. And so like in order to ramp up this production, it's not something that you can ship across state lines and set up a new factory. It's an entirely new process in a new region. And so that means the actual facility has to be set up. You have to have the right designs and everything. And Intel's a perfect corporation to make their own chips. Yeah. But you also have to have the talent to then operate the machinery and do the manufacturing. Yeah, as you're well. recruiting some very specialized high level talent of which there in some in some instances there are only you know, a, a couple thousand people in the world that are capable of doing some of this work. Well, and when you, exactly, I mean, when you move manufacturing like that to an area where it hasn't previously existed, you also have to move talent to that area as well. This is something that we've seen, particularly over the last 10 to 15 years, but especially in the technology industry and computer science in particular, mm-hmm. in that software engineers typically we're looking for the top of the line software engineers. We're all in Seattle and Silicon Valley. Yep. And now over these past couple of years, we've noticed moves to Texas. We've seen moves to uh, Ohio. We've seen moves to all sorts of major cities around the U.S., but also around the world, in, particularly in the remote areas of this um, tech field. Yeah, absolutely. And 
while it's viable that a number of these people can work remotely, especially where manufacturing is concerned, a lot of these process engineers, application engineers, they need to be able to be on site. And um, with semiconductors in particular, one of the challenges, and this is actually something that I heard about quite recently, um, there is only one company in the world that is capable of producing one of the machines that is uh, critical to this process. Um, I believe it's a, they're essentially, a, it's a lens maker uh, would, would typically make this machine because I, I, I'm, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but what I've uh, been told is that Carl Zeiss, another prominent uh, company that's operates in this area is not quite at the point where they're able to develop this machine. So there is, it remains to this one other company that is much smaller than Carl Zeiss, but more advanced in this regard. And they're only able to produce one of these machines per month. So they are sold, essentially they're sold for the next several years because they're at peak capacity and they're not able to expand beyond that. And I also heard that they had a fire in their facility that inhibited their production uh, quite recently. I'm not sure about the fire, but I do believe you're correct on the uh, lens manufacturer. And that is, is kind of ties into the global sense of things as well and why it's going to be several years until we really see some of these issues, particularly with the supply chain and these semiconductors manufacturing in general being remedied is that manufacturing much like the supply chain doesn't function in this way that you may think they are essentially running at capacity all the time. Anything that isn't currently manufacturing something or isn't running is essentially wasted effort by the company. And so they're essentially running at capacity all the time. So once the supply chain falls behind, or in this case, manufacturing on semiconductors falls behind, there's no way to catch back up. You don't have machinery on standby that you can just start up at the drop of a hat. This is a process that means purchasing more material, building the you know infrastructure, whether that's facility or the actual machinery required to make the semiconductors. These Each of these is a year, sometimes multiple year long processes in order for them to actually work all the way through. Yeah. And in a way, we're only just now starting to see some of the impact of COVID on the economy because we had been propped up for the last two years by extensive fiscal stimulus and extensive monetary expansion. And this most recent quarter, uh, quarter one in uh, 2022, is the first uh, negative GDP quarter that we've posted since the start of the pandemic. We had managed to keep positive GDP growth since the beginning, uh, despite lockdowns, obviously, with the exception being the quarter in which we locked down. Um, however, it's just been, it's been from a paper standpoint, it's been recovery ongoing since then. And, um, yeah, the, the reality just doesn't match that situation at this point, because like you're saying, production capacity has only just begun to be hindered. Um, supply chain is being, uh, shortages are being realized. And, um, part of the reason why the negative GDP growth was posted was also because, um, it's, it's an accounting, uh, I don't want to say trick, but it's it's an accounting uh, issue that results from when companies buy excess inventory, it it, it essentially uh, reflects negatively upon their profitability figures. So companies, in reaction to the supply chain shortages, have stocked up extra on inventory at this point, the smart ones anyway, um, in order to be able to continue operations. And 
just going back to what you were talking about, uh, manufacturing operations running at peak capacity, this is something I can speak to. Um, something that is utilized heavily in manufacturing is an assessment known as uh, key performance indicators are what's observed. And um, the key, the important one uh, in this regard is um, OEE, overall uh, equipment efficiency. And that's the number that measures what percent of the time are your machines operating. And industry gold standard in uh, this obviously varies depending on what type of manufacturer industry you're talking about, but industry gold standard will be anywhere from like 75% to 90%. No one has machines that are running 100% of the time. You have downtime for maintenance, for shift changes, for whatever it is, um, even with pretty heavily automated production lines. And um, obviously not all facilities are able to attain that level of efficiency. And with some of the issues that we've seen in labor markets, especially we have seen these key performance indicators decline. Yeah, I mean, particularly, you know, we had this period of lockdowns where they were essentially dropped to zero or, you know, significantly hindered for mm -hmm. extended periods of time. And so we're really just now seeing the effect of that on, you know, the economy, but also like the availability of these products overall. And so now that we're realizing it, you know, effectively coming out of this, you know, stimulus era, what effect does that really have on the economy? And that's essentially where you get into these issues of higher inflation and, you know, pressure from not only other nations, but, you know, other consumers within your economic spheres. Whereas now you have essentially companies stocking up on these resources that they need in order to keep production moving. But you also have some people, particularly builders and contractors, you know, general consumers of these resources who are just trying to use them essentially as is competing for something that they weren't directly competing with each other beforehand. Yeah. And while few, if anyone is willing to perhaps say it yet, um, there you're probably not going to see it widely distributed in the media until probably around August, I would assume, after Q2 uh, GDP numbers have been posted. Um, at, at, at that point, I presume they will announce that we are officially in a recession after two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. However, I very much believe that we are already in that recession. It's just yet to be recognized. Well, and this is one thing that we were talking a little bit about earlier today before we started recording is that you know, with this kind of period where we've had, you know, excessive economic growth, and then we went into this period of stimulus through the difficult pandemic era, whereas like essentially the last quarter of 2021, our GDP growth was likely propped up by all of this spending. And so it's essentially, I mean, from mine and your perspective, we're essentially already in the early yeah. stages of this recession. Yeah, I would argue that it, it, in real terms, this was our second consecutive negative GDP growth quarter. Um, because yeah, like you're saying, what Glenn is talking about is the American Rescue Plan uh, funds were still available, um, which were kind of propping up um, markets to a degree. Uh, in, 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 in a sense, this is unconventional for a lot of reasons because... We do not have a shortage of demand yet. Inflation is beginning to curb demand because prices are starting to hurt people's pocketbooks enough that they're saying, maybe I'll hold off on this purchase even though I kind of really need this thing. Um, and 
so it remains to be seen what shape and what form this recession takes on, but we still have a lot of demand. We have, uh, this is more of a supply side uh, recession, if anything, at this point. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that's like sort of in the background and goes kind of hand in hand with uh, our discussions on manufacturing is in, you know, this is essentially a supply issue. Whereas at the same time, coming out of this pandemic stimulus essentially era a couple of years here, we're still not sure how much is going to be changed from the pandemic in terms of manufacturing and supply. One of the things you we mean saw long term like redistributions of these chains. Yeah, but also to some degree the reallocation of manufacturing location. Mm. And so in particular through through the tail end of uh, 2021 in particular, we saw a very heavy push here in the U.S. to more U.S.-based manufacturing. Not to replace what we import from overseas, but to augment that so that, you know, in the event of another pandemic or similar supply chain issues, we can alleviate some of the dramatic changes that are required. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I can speak to this myself. I decided to start a manufacturing company for this particular reason. I feel very strongly about the need to not necessarily, you know, dismantle global supply chains. We we are still always going to rely on raw materials, on sometimes processed materials from other countries. There, The U.S., however resource-rich we are, is in virtually no country is capable of being fully self-reliant with the territory they currently hold. And that is why we conduct so much global trade and it's greatly to our benefit, but there are costs as well associated with that. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that the pandemic really showed us as well as other nations around the world that, you know, you can rely on these global supply chains and, uh, you know, your allies and other countries around the world, but to rely so heavily on them, is not a good idea in terms of sustainability and longevity. There needs to be some balance in that equation. Exactly. One that's often talked about is, you know, we used to manufacture a number of our pharmaceutical drugs here in the United States or in Puerto Rico, at least, which is a U.S. territory. Um, due to various tax incentives and uh, liability concerns and a variety of other factors, that has almost entirely been offshored to China. And now bulk of our antibiotics uh, come from China. We're entirely re resilient, uh, excuse me, um, reliant on China for penicillin, for um, uh, insulin, I believe, is another one. Uh, I believe insulin's yeah. really heavy. Yeah, I'm really not... important and critical drugs, life-saving drugs that are required uh, for our society to function safely. Yeah, I'm not particularly sure on, you know, where each one of these different um, drugs is located, but like the pharmaceuticals company in particular is very heavily outsourced compared to what it was 10, especially, you know, further than that 20 years ago. Like China is definitely one of the biggest ones, yeah. but I also know that we rely very heavily on the Philippines and just generally speaking, Southeast Asia and Asia and more broadly speaking. In India as well. And um, pharmaceuticals in particular is one where you really have to ask yourself the question, why did we do this? Pharmaceuticals cost virtually nothing to produce in comparison to the profit that they generate. 
they're extremely cheap to produce. The intellectual property is what's extremely valuable when you're talking about pharmaceuticals. Yeah, the interesting thing with things like pharmaceuticals especially, but kind of more broadly speaking, manufacturing, is is sooner or later you end up with sort of a, um, what I'll call a chemical sciences issue in that it's not very expensive or even complicated to make after a certain point. However, there is a substantial amount of risk involved. And that's where you kind of alluded to the liability. Yes. So the regulatory burden and the legal compliance requirements are obviously much more significant if a pharmaceutical manufacturer were to produce here in the United States. And of course, I mean, they're not fully shielded from liability by any means. I mean, um, Purdue Pharmaceuticals was uh, recently, Purdue Pharma was uh, recently, you know, sued into oblivion, uh, though the Sackler family's personal assets were ultimately deemed protected by the courts. Um, they, the company has gone under and uh, now, you know, uh, opiates are now manufactured by other producers, but they still remain. Well, I mean, in particular, like this is obviously one example. I mean, every industry has different aspects of this that are relevant to them, but for example, the student, the pharmaceutical industry, there's a lot more risk in manufacturing these things in the United States versus country like China, in which it's far less regulated in terms of, you know, if you were to lose a shipment of these pharmaceuticals, it's far less costly to you as a company than it is to have a chemical outbreak or otherwise incident at your facility. Yeah. And I mean, these are not pharmaceutical related and not to say that we don't have catastrophic failures and disasters here in the United States. But if you pay attention, there has been some pretty high profile uh, chemical facility explosions that have happened in China over the last decade, <laughs> like quite massive explosions. And uh, I mean, though it, that does definitely happen here in the United States, not nearly as frequently and not nearly as severely. But um, safety, we, we have much higher safety standards. Uh, here in the United States. And there's a lot of costs associated with that as well. And that's something that businesses factor into their decision making. But ultimately, we've spent a lot of time talking about the United States and really we're talking about developed economies in general, namely, you know, Europe, Canada, um, mm-hmm. other uh, advanced economies that have kind of moved past manufacturing and have outsourced their manufacturing and are mostly operating on an information and services economy basis at this point. But we have not and we touched on this in our last episode. Actually, we talked about this uh, pretty extensively in our last episode. The economic recovery from COVID is going to be far more severe for these other countries, especially if the United States enters into recession. If we talk about this with the presupposition that the United States is entering a recession, then realistically, we're looking at, I think both you and I agree on that, this estimated five to seven, maybe eight years Absolutely. Uh, full, full recovery period. Um, you know, that some may say that's bold speculation on our part. Um, I would say, let's wait and see. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to some extent, it's just difficult to predict very far into sure, the future. Absolutely. But at the same time, this is an educated guess. I mean, best. and quite educated in this respect. I mean, like we're entering into this, we essentially believe to some extent that we're already in a recession and that, you know, this is likely to continue. And that poses a very real issue from a global perspective. I mean, we're specifically talking quite heavily about the U.S., but like you said, other developed countries in general are having similar issues to what the U.S. is having with regards to the pandemic and stimulus packages. And so 
when a developed nation has this difficulty internally in supply chain and resources and manufacturing, it becomes much more difficult for the citizens of these developed countries to acquire resources from other nations. And so this affects raw resources the most, I would say, but also anything produced from those resources as well. It becomes much more difficult, particularly in terms of just monetary value and being able to purchase them, Mm -hmm. but also the fact that this is compounding the supply chain issues of those countries' own manufacturing requirements as well. And so you have this kind of double stacking of these supply chain issues in that not only do you need the resources in order to produce the goods that whatever nation you're discussing produces, but also just the resources and consumer goods that the people of those nations want. All simultaneously while your purchasing power is being eroded. And that's another thing that we've talked about at length in our last episode, I believe we uh, discussed the petrodollar standard and the reasons for some of the reasons for the United States dollar's strong purchasing power globally in the wake of the collapse of the gold standard. And something pretty revolutionary actually occurred on this front, um, I believe a week or two ago, was uh, that Israel, one of the United States' closest allies, their central bank made the decision to begin holding the Chinese yuan in their reserves. And it's not a massive allocation, but it sends a very clear signal to other allies of the United States, uh, Israel taking that pretty bold action against the United States essentially uh, gives basis for European central bankers and other central bankers to say, hey, maybe we should kind of hedge our bets as well in the event that the United States does not, economy does not prove stable enough for us to be holding all these dollar reserves. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's so much uh, against the United States as it's and pretty accurate and telling measure of the level of uncertainty, particularly yeah. from financial and economic spheres right now. Well, it's certainly a rational position, but the only reason I describe it as against the United States is because we've gone to war for less, actually. Yeah, I mean, yes. But I'll, I mean, what I'm particularly getting at here is it's more of a, you don't really know how good those you know historical alliances and tendencies are in this kind of a volatile environment. Oh, of course. I mean, ultimately, Israel has always acted in their rational self-interest. Absolutely. More so than as a good ally, quote And unquote. I mean, in particular, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, that China itself is in a pretty precarious situation, not only with their economy, but their, you know, more recently have been heading back into lockdowns again, particularly in Shanghai and Beijing, some of the most populated cities there. Yeah, so the other reality of this is that though... While for many of us, COVID is essentially over, uh, especially if you live in a state like Florida, perhaps, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, it remains to be seen. Uh, it's, I, I, I think I've heard a lot of expert consensus that we are in the endemic stages of this, I've spoken to a number of physicians on this as well, and, um, but we, never, we, we don't know. We don't know what direction it could take. Um, and China has kind of, uh, we were discussing this a little bit before the show, China is kind of caught in their own trap so to speak and they're also waging a sort of ideological war against the west in that they have not authorized for usage in their country any of the western developed vaccine not the you know i'm, I'm not going to label them directly because i'm pretty sure youtube does not like uh us talking about those specific uh uh vaccines but we will 
just generically say China has not authorized any uh, Western-developed uh, vaccines, and they are stuck with theirs, which is far less effective than the Western-developed uh, vaccines. Yeah, they're pretty heavily entrenched in the China-only policy, I'll say, in terms of goods, but in particular, in this case, in their vaccine policies. And to a large extent, their vaccines have proved quite ineffective as these new variants have come out. And obviously we don't know exactly where we are or even have a really good idea of any kind in, you know, essentially what stage of this virus and pandemic that we're in. And so it's hard to essentially evaluate that, but it, you know, also predict anything that could happen because of that. But at the same time, China is forced to re-enter this lockdown stage that large, the larger part of Western developed nations have been able to slowly come out of over time. Well, yes. And so they have very high vaccination rates because the state can essentially mandate it in China. I believe uh, they're uh, just above 80% is their vaccination rate. However, it's a, you know, like unarguably inferior vaccine uh, to the Western developed uh, vaccines in terms of efficacy. And there's countless studies that indicate this. And China has also adopted from the beginning a zero COVID policy, and that's why we're seeing these lockdowns. However, it's pretty significant when cities like Shanghai and Beijing most recently locked down. We haven't seen potentially the greatest impact of this when the manufacturing hubs of China uh, potentially locked down. Currently, I mean, Shanghai and Beijing are the information centers of China, over there, not the manufacturing centers. They're, they're in particular Shanghai and Beijing are these cities much more like we traditionally think of, you know, Western developed nations in that it's more, much more business and information services and, you know, those kinds of movers in the economy. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's like Washington, D.C. and New York City. Right. Shutting down. And so when we see whatever we see moving forward, but in particular, to see more manufacturing centers in China, if they are to enter lockdown, could be quite problematic and absolutely strenuous to a very real degree on the actual supply chain issues that we're already seeing. If that were to happen, and let's hope and pray that that does not, because that, that would be utterly devastating to the United States economy. We've talked about how this is already a supply side recession of sorts, that we are so reliant on China for so many inputs and for so many finished goods that if that were the case and there were to be even uh, a one month, maybe six week shutdown in uh, the core manufacturing hubs of China, that would be utterly devastating for the United States economy. I mean, it, essentially at this stage, we kind of touched on this earlier with our estimate of about five to seven years, mm-hmm. which we're fairly comfortable with. But essentially, as all of these different factors are coming together to produce the situation that we're currently in. Any additional strain on these areas will prove very dramatic in the effects and how long-term those effects actually are. Yeah. And um, the one other thing that I, we have discussed at some length before is the impact of food shortages, which while we believe that we will not, directly face this impact heavily in the United States, we will face some increased costs, some discomfort, uh, some, you know, 
individuals on the lower income spectrum of the United States will face some uh, greater struggle. But at the end of the day, we do spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on programs for assistance uh, for those people. And that can be augmented pretty easily uh, by the federal government if need be. I don't know that we necessarily may even find ourselves in that in that level of a situation. But the global south and uh, just uh, the east in general um, are experiencing these shortages. And people in uh, the, Ch- the Chinese economy does not have the capability to print currency at the, the way that the United States economy does. So while they are quite cash rich from the fact that they produce so much of our goods and services, they don't have the same capital leveraging uh, abilities that the United States does. Uh, they've kind of left that to us, allowed us to inflate our currency while they have deflated their currency uh, over the last several decades uh, since they were introduced to the uh, World Trade Organization in the 90s. They've persistently done that to make themselves the most competitive option for manufacturing. And currently, uh, we are seeing reports out of Shanghai that the people there are having serious uh, food shortages and struggles because they have no income uh, at the moment. They've been locked down for several weeks now, and uh, they do not have a large cushion of savings uh, like Western people in Western nations may have. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of, I mean, part and parcel for what we're seeing just around the world right now in a lot of areas, particularly in, you know, Africa, South America, but China as well, and many other nations as well, in these areas where, you know, essentially labor is cheaper than these Western developed nations, these impacts of you know, inflation and supply chain shortage and especially lockdowns is much more real and everyday than we might give credence to here in the U.S. where we're you know, extremely fortunate in our diversity in agriculture and so many other industries. But uh, I do want to kind of circle back to yeah. the question and what are some of the things that the United States can do to kind of facilitate us moving out of this period? Hmm. So that's a very good question. Um, it's a, it's a tough question because we're in, we're in a lot of theoretical territory at this point. This is kind of unprecedented, uh, territory, historically speaking, uh, in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And, um, the biggest thing that I would argue needs to be done, and it's an extremely painful step, mind you, and I don't even know the viability of it because, so many other systems are pegged to this, and we've discussed this a little bit before as well. Um, the wisest course of action to curb inflation is that the Federal Reserve needs to drastically increase interest rates, not the 25 basis point increase that we saw um, back in March, but that we need to, we're talking um, 50 to 75 basis point increases every three months or so. And um, that that is... Uh, the only way, realistically, uh, you know, we're kind of past the point of being able to rationally address this inflation. Um, it could very easily uh, spiral out of control under a lot of the theoretical frameworks that we're operating with. Um, this inflation, it could absolutely spiral out of control. I don't think that's the most likely scenario by any means. I think that we will um, probably uh, not in, see inflation increase at the rates that it has increased over the last couple months at least. I think it will continue to increase perhaps until the end of the year, perhaps partway into 2023. Um, 
but it will kind of uh, stabilize at a certain point because um, there's only so much elasticity of price in certain areas. People will stop buying things at a certain point, though I don't know exactly where that point lies because frankly speaking, used car inflation is at like 40% right now and people are still buying used cars. I'm not sure who's buying these used cars. I understand that people need cars. Like it's not always a, a choice, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, what's really hopeful is that the particularly with the United States government, but governments around the world are, they are taking steps to curb inflation, to incentivize manufacturing to be boosted and, you know, things of that nature, which definitely do help. Um, I'm very much of the same mindset of you in which, you know, the fed in particular here in the U S needs to increase basis points much faster than they are. Yeah. And, you know, to some extent, I believe we touched on this earlier, but, probably should have started you know early last year it should, as yeah, it should have been to, preemptively but yes as as opposed to like beginning this year but at the same time i think in particular the biggest issue we have here in the u.s is a spending problem in that you can't keep spending money if that money is constantly being devalued uh yeah but simultaneously the government is also we've again this is something that we discussed the government is pretty more pleased than any other party of all this inflation because the thing that is being inflated away the fastest is the United States debt, which is massive, of course. Um, I don't even know what that number is sitting at right now. What is it, like $28 trillion now? I believe That's so. It's absurd. Um, which, you know, that, that number is hard to even fathom when you consider the fact that our total GDP is, uh, is, is now lower than our, our national debt. Um, and you know, we can talk about theoretical, like maximums of how far you can push that debt to GDP ratio. Of course, Japan has really tested that limit and has gone much farther than, uh, we currently are in this area, but Japan's economy is also a mess. Uh, the yen is currently being devalued at absurd rates and, uh, <laughs> the Japanese central bank has taken actions that our central bank never has. And uh, I believe they also entered negative interest rates. We never saw negative interest rates here in the United States. Um, we, we saw historically low interest rates. And yeah. just to clarify some of the numbers here, the United States national debt is over $30 trillion, oh, yeah. while the GDP is in the neighborhood of $23 trillion. Yeah. Yeah. So we're nearing that um, 150% uh, ratio, um, which is an unhealthy level, perhaps, but it's not the end of the world inherently. Um, but yeah, Glenn, like you say, we do have a spending problem. And um, the big issue with some of the circumstances that we found ourselves in is that there's not great policy actions that can be taken at this point, because how we found ourselves in this mess was, of course, external catalysts like COVID, like war, like food shortages that are a resultant of that war. And um, but ultimately, uh preparation would have needed to have been made years in advance to accommodate this. And all our government has done largely has displayed an unwillingness to be prepared. And perhaps it's an inherent fault within our four year election cycle and two year, uh, you know, house uh, election cycle that, that makes, that makes it a challenge for the United States to adopt any sort of long-term coherent policy and of course, China knows this. Other countries with longer-term uh, single-party state uh, control 
uh, are aware of this and take advantage of this oftentimes. It's that's definitely a key and very important factor, particularly in the US case. But I think it's also important to note some of the more recent developments. Like, I mean, particularly with the US, we've had a sustained growth at pretty high levels for decades now, wherein, you know, it's much more effective for a company or even an industry at large to take advantage of that and stretch what they can achieve. And in doing so, you sort of you're you're increasing your max capacity for growth, but you're also limiting that sort of elasticity region we mentioned a bit earlier in that you can't suffer as many issues in order to you know, actually achieve the floor that you need in order to sustain life as you've known it during this period. Yeah, and that's why a lot of people uh, kind of feel the sentiment. You, you see this echoed online uh, pretty frequently uh, across the board, especially among young people. I, I see it, though. Uh, just the sentiment that despite the fact that we perhaps objectively uh, have the highest quality of life in terms of scientific development, technological advancements, all of these areas, uh, despite that, in a certain way, it feels like quality of life is declining uh, to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's a interesting expectation that people have. And I mean, it obviously varies generation to generation. But, you know, there's an idea of, you know, like our parents and their our grandparents generation in which, you know, no food, nothing went to waste, no matter what it was, food, any kind of resources you consumed and used absolutely every single piece of it. And you, you repaired know, things rather than buying a new one. Exactly. And so like in I think that's something that we're seeing, particularly in the used car market, is this sort of transition to where the older generation would much rather have a used car and repair it and fix it sort of known issues as opposed to something new that you don't fully understand. And so I think that's to some degree a disconnect and it's hard to transition that in this current state that we're in. Well, I mean, I, I think it has more to do with the fact that new car inventories are just very short, but I, but I, I agree with the sentiment uh, of that. Uh, I mean, right to repair has been a large movement, uh, especially in agriculture. Farmers have been needing the ability to repair their own equipment for quite some time now because of the intense capital expenditures required to maintain their, uh, their uh, advanced farming equipment with OEM parts, which is what they're largely required to use. Um, without having like substitutes, most of these guys know how to repair their own machines. They know how to, they, they have the manuals, they know how to replace the part, they know how to identify the issues even oftentimes. They just have no means of procuring the parts. Um, and I'm not sure if that's, an, that's due to certain contracts and agreements, intellectual property. I think it's probably a combination of those factors. Um, I'm not extremely well researched in this area. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the realm of contracts, I mean, especially with regards to heavy machinery is an area I've had definitely a substantial amount of exposure to. It's typically written into the contract that for a certain period of years, usually in the neighborhood of two to three years, while it's still fairly new and under warranty, that OEM parts are required or you void warranty or otherwise void contracts. And so there's definitely a lot to that. 
Sure, and ultimately, most of these farmers don't actually own this equipment. The this equipment is owned by the banks, and typically through collateralized loans, the farmers uh, are able to purchase this equipment. Yeah, and I mean, there's a certain level of you know maintenance that is required, not only on the equipment, but also in particular on these loans that. You know, you put up collateral in order to get the initial loan, but then year over year, you have to maintain a certain level of payments or otherwise productivity based off of this equipment in order to justify the collateral and maintaining the loan long term. And so when you go through periods like the pandemic where, you know, productivity can go up some years and down other years for whether that be lockdowns, maybe it's more difficult for you to get help that one year over another year, that makes it much more difficult to maintain that that existing contract or loan. Yeah, and that's interesting that you bring that up because that that just draws attention to how significant the risks are to farmers or to anybody that is investing in this sort of capital expenditure for machinery. Um, If your productivity is not able to meet the demands of those increased in cost of not only paying for your equipment, but certain the cost of servicing that debt, then you're going to go under and you're going to get acquired by likely private equity firms, which is what we've seen across the country in virtually every industry at this point is the amount of capital that is floating around within private equity is truly absurd. And it's been facilitated largely by our governmental policy uh, to this degree. So I, I, in a way, it's it's not really a great answer to the question that we received. Because uh, I, I would argue that a big reason that we're in this situation we're in right now is because of uh, failures of government policy. And um, there, so you did touch on this when we first uh, began uh, the policy portion of this. One, one other thing that I do believe the government could do is lower regulatory burden um, I don't necessarily believe that needs to be done long term. You know, I do believe that a lot of regulation is rational and is important and protects natural resources, protects people. Um, however, I think that you have to, um, in certain emergency situations, you have to roll back those regulations, even if you fix that into the legislation that you put in place or whether via executive order, yeah. you state that. This is a you know temporary period, just like how we you know temporarily uh, offered uh, you know uh, rent protections and all of these other uh, pandemic-related assistances, um, more uh, regulatory easing of burdens. And you know, full disclosure, I I do benefit from that. I am in the manufacturing industry, but I I I very firmly believe that across the board. I mean, I definitely agree with that too. And I mean, in particular, just from my own personal opinion, like in particular, a lot of regulation is absolutely necessary, particularly when it comes to the environment and safety. But there's a substantial amount of regulation that is largely operational costs. Purely administrative burden. And just makes it difficult to get quality help and to allow people to do what is necessary in order to keep these industries flowing. And so a temporary stay on that could be very impactful and may not have as many, I'll call them negative side effects as you might think in a longer term scenario. Now, of course, we're talking about these regulation burdens in a temporary sense. Yes. But 
additionally, like in terms of policy, it's largely a inaction in preparation for something like this could happen. Mm -hmm. And so to some extent, it's a wake up call in that this could always happen. And we do need to maintain a level of preparation in the event that it does happen. Yeah. And ultimately, um, you know, this is goes back to what I was talking about with, is this an impossibility for us given the nature of our political system um, with, you know, offloading the strategic petroleum reserve in order to mildly ameliorate petroleum prices for consumers, which er, is that perhaps politically popular? Yeah, probably. Even if it you know results in like a five, 10% reduction in fuel costs, most people are probably pretty happy about that. Is that wise for it? the long-term strategic planning and goals of the United States, I would argue probably not. However, because we have an election coming up this fall, it is just something that it's an action that I believe has been taken uh, on a political basis. And if we look at some of the actions that this administration attempted to take last year, in particular, um, the uh, infrastructure spending, which did not ultimately pass, um, I do believe that had that passed, that we would have been we would have succeeded in delaying the recession. Um, however, I believe that's it. I, I, I think that all it would have done is kick the can further down the road. Ultimately, I don't think it would have led to actual economic recovery in the near term. Perhaps infrastructure spending, I do believe, is important, and I do think it is something this country needs to invest in. But timing is everything with these things. Yeah, and I mean, I would have a slightly different view on that bill in particular in that I do think that it would have it would have looked like things were getting a bit better, but essentially it would have kicked the can down the road and made it worse because yeah, it, yeah, it that, would have I, compounded some of like the spending and inflation and like some of those pressures that we're seeing already. And so in the near to medium term, I would agree in the long term, I think infrastructure spending at that, even at that time may have benefited us. I mean, that remains to be seen. I'm I'm very much on the side of, infrastructure spending is a good thing yeah. and is long-term definitely beneficial. The question is getting to that long-term, what does it cost you? And it's a difficult thing to evaluate in particular right now we're in a you know recessionary period or on the verges of a recessionary period. And so it's difficult to say whether it's better to do it now or get through this and then do it. It's, you know, that's not always clear. Yeah. And ultimately uh, one would argue the reason why that bill didn't pass is because there was a lot of pork in that bill. There was yeah. extensive, a uh, couple, uh, like hundred billion, I believe, uh, allocated to childcare spending, which I'm not saying that that's unimportant, but I don't believe that's infrastructure. Yeah. And I mean, that's particularly one of the issues that we have, like you were saying in our shorter election cycle, we have an elections coming up this year in that, you know, the things that, are i'll say added to bills and don't allow the bills to be as targeted as they probably should be they're kind of they, they often act as a poison pill yeah and so you largely have to take some good with some bad in order to do what you actually need to do and so i mean in my opinion that bill was too large and had too many different things in order to get it to pass mm -hmm. and it depends on a lot of timing from our election cycle, but also what are the needs now, but also the needs in the future. That's another 
difficult problem to balance. Yeah. And that bill would have passed had this administration had a slightly wider, wider margin in the Senate. But that's not the reality. And I think that they should have ac- accounted for their narrow margin in the Senate when crafting a bill like that. But ultimately, um, you know, administrations have very little to do with the crafting of these bills. These bills are largely written by lobbyists. Virtually all bills are largely written by lobbyists and uh, reviewed by uh, congressional staff. Yeah, I mean, to a large degree, the administration and, you know, congressional leaders and congressional staff at large really primarily serves as the direction and sort of the focus, not only for the media, but also for the broader populace that they vote for or that vote for them and that they represent while they're in office. But they're effectively not the ones who write the vast majority of this legislation. Yeah. Um, I did want to, for us to, I, I think we've reached a pretty decent conclusion on our perspectives on the timing of how long do we think it's going to take to recover, what sort of policy actions can be taken by the government. Like I said, I, I frankly, I, I do believe that there's very little uh, productive policy action that can be taken by the U.S. government to actually uh, promote recovery at, at this stage uh, for all of the factors that we've discussed. Um, but we want, did want to get to the second question as well. And um, like I said, really great that these questions we got today, this first one in particular was just spot on with what we wanted to talk about anyway. Uh, The second one though um, is uh, going in a little bit of a different direction, um, but still related to inflation very much. So uh, very much ties into all of this. Um, So as uh, essentially as inflation continues to be such a major issue across the globe, you know, what, what role, uh, again, I'm paraphrasing, what role can cryptocurrency play in um, serving as a kind of an alternative um, for fiat currency, a substitute of sorts? And uh, what are some of the, uh, is, is the possibility of uh, central bank issued fiat currency? This is a pretty hot topic that's been a major focus of conversation globally in a big way. Um, what what sort of role can central uh, central bank um, administered cryptocurrency play, or is 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 it a, a viable substitute for fiat, or is this just another um, appreciating asset like a equity like equities or real estate has been uh, for many years, uh, something that people will treat as an investment or something that people will realistically use? Yeah, I mean, in particular, I'd just like to get one thing right out the gate is the idea that a state-issued cryptocurrency is different from a fiat currency is in and of itself wrong. So like if yeah, the United States has better traceability. <laughs> right. So like if the United States, yeah. you know, comes out with their own cryptocurrency version of the US dollar, it is no different from a technical and I would argue from an economic perspective though I'll let you speak to this more. The a U.S. government cryptocurrency is indistinguishable from a U.S. dollar as a fiat currency. No, you're 100 percent right. Um, it is virtually indistinguishable. The only uh, exception being that it is uh, far more easily trackable and traceable. Uh, so you have less privacy in your transactions. 
And I mean, that's largely due to the you know, physical dollar and actually having to witness the transaction to some degree, correct? Yeah, but even with most transactions occurring online as it is today, I mean, I found myself in the position where I needed to ask somebody for cash to be able to like tip the valet at an event I was at on Saturday. And I was like, wow, I have not had cash in my wallet in probably six months at least. Right. Um, and like the other side of this as well, not only the state issued cryptocurrency, but the idea that a state, whether that be the US, whether that be China or whatever nation around the world, that they would adopt a cryptocurrency as legal tender isn't very realistic. Um, yes, but as you say that, I will also say that there are now three countries that have adopted Bitcoin as their well. So I, legal, I should I should amend tender. that. I should amend that statement, yeah. <laughs> not, not as legal tender, but yeah. like as a replacement for their currency. I mean, not even state issued in the sense that Bitcoin is sort of anonymously issued. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's so it, it being decentralized. Um it's 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 kind of this war that's being waged that we've talked about in our first episode i think was when we touched on this or maybe our second um this we've probably talked about it every single episode <laughs> to some degree it's come up a lot decentralization versus centralization um you know uh kind of democratic relatively democratic control of um processes with regards to how this currency is administered and how the value and um um what you know whether there is a fork in these chains whether how 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 these tokens are distributed what the caps on these are um versus a centrally bank issued currency cryptocurrency will not have a hard cap coded into it i promise you that <laughs> yeah that's definitely for um, sure but and that's why i think there's a duality to this answer um i i do think that central bank issued digital currency is going to become a standard uh, I, I think that there's a lot of political pressure uh, for these and a lot of interest among these central bankers in Europe and the United States in particular to move in this direction. I don't know whether the populations of these countries will actually accept this or tolerate this. You know, that's something that remains to be seen. I, I do think that, but people to a degree have kind of foregone the uh, right to privacy as it is. We've 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 kind of uh, been sold on the merits of um, you know, the comforts of the devices that we use. We've all given up privacy to have a smartphone in our pocket. Yeah, I mean, I would in large part agree with that up to the point of giving up privacy in the sense that, like, particularly the United States and European nations, but it also does seem like um, some South American nations, also China does seem to be slowly inching towards that direction. Uh, India in particular is definitely leaning this direction in that they would, you know, have some version of a cryptocurrency that is reminiscent or loosely equivalent to their, you know, existing fiat currencies. But it's definitely going to take some time, in particular for general populace, but also the legal realms of these different nations to sort of catch up to that. But definitely here in the U.S., traceability is something that people are longing for. Yeah. And I mean, privacy is something that we in particular take very seriously. But at the same time, we do regularly give that up 
for something that can be proven to be more effective. Well, and I don't want to represent this as if we are only on one side of this issue. Um, I, I definitely think there is a lot of merits to increase traceability within transactions for auditability. Um, you know, you could eliminate a lot of fraud and abuse. You could eliminate a lot of money laundering. Um, you could eliminate a lot of crime in general. Um, you I could enforce uh, tax compliance. You know, that's a matter of personal perspective, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I suppose. But. Well, I, th I think it's also important to note that, you know, in particular, cryptocurrency has been around for a few years now, but it's still very much in its infancy from an idea or an ideological perspective in that, like, it is very, it is extremely traceable, but the idea that you can't have a cryptocurrency transaction anonymously is still very much a possibility. So it's a matter of, you know, one cryptocurrency wallet sending money to another, for example, whether that be a business or a person or a nation, whatever entity it is on either end. The idea that that account is readily available information to everyone is very much an up in the air topic. And so like there can be advancements made in this area so i think it's important to note that it's in my opinion a very viable currency so long as what you're trying to exchange it for will accept it absolutely and i will say i've been following cryptocurrency and i've owned cryptocurrency since as early as 2011 i was very much an early adopter of crypto um however i will also say that i'm not an engineer or a <laughs> Uh, data scientist or any any sort of uh, uh, expert in uh, the actual uh, technical uh, elements of the field. So Glenn, maybe you can speak to this uh, more than I can. But uh, essentially, with most of the current uh, currently widely popular uh, cryptocurrencies, namely Bitcoin and Ethereum, if you were able to identify a wallet address as belonging to a particular party, you could then monitor every transaction inflow and outflow from that particular party. For example, Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, his wallet address is known because the tokens in that wallet have not moved since he created it. And so that's one of these areas that I'm sort of alluding to here is that like currently Satoshi Nakamoto made Bitcoin, which in its purest form was technically sound from not only in efficiency, a back and forth, Bitcoin mining, trading, the actual function of the currency, but it doesn't have what I would call the more advanced features of any technology. And so in particular, what I'm getting at here is something similar to VPNs, which are virtual private networks. And so in the inception of the internet, people just had an IP address and a computer could talk to another computer and you would exchange IP addresses. You had no proof that that IP address was any particular location. And so over time, we've come up with ways to geolocate these IP addresses. And these are because they're region-based all around the world. That's because subnets, of DNS, correct? DNS yeah. is largely what made that process a lot simpler. And so what I'm getting at here is at the inception of the internet, it was a very local, very point to point, you have a set number and we have this transaction, whether that be information or in this discussion, cryptocurrency. And so 
what I'm sort of alluding to is this idea that Bitcoin is technically sound from a security perspective. Now, in order to get a Bitcoin that has longevity in terms of anonymity or privacy or, you know, otherwise controlling aspects of what other people can see of yours, Mm -hmm. like that is something that you would expect to see in a Bitcoin 2.0 or, you know, further updates to the technology. But we haven't had that yet. We've seen different variations in terms of Ethereum yeah. and all of the other alternative coins. I'm not even going to bother mentioning them. I was going to say, them. yeah, there's, there's so many that we couldn't even begin to discuss all of them. But, but so, I mean, largely they have different advantages and disadvantages. And I mean, in particular with Ethereum, which I would argue is the second, second only to Bitcoin, mm-hmm. in that the main difference there is the administrators which do offer a lot of value, assuming you have a certain level of trust with those administrators. Yeah, from uh, everything that I've heard, and I, I, am, I know some very large holders of Ethereum personally, um, the developers uh, around the Ethereum project uh, have a lot of dedication, have a lot of talent working with them. However, they're also going to undergo a very major challenge this year with the rollout of Ethereum 2.0, moving from uh, proof of work to proof of stake, which is also uh, important for the longevity of cryptocurrency in the conversation where uh, environmental friendliness of the network is uh, of concern to a lot of people. A lot of media has uh, often talked about this, that Bitcoin is very resource intensive. Ultimately, uh, the reality is, is that the cost of running the Bitcoin network, when you consider the fact that if it were used as a global standard of transacting and of uh, transfer of value, that would be a very trivial cost of energy in the scale of things. However, it is a large, uh, large energy consumer. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely not negligible. And I would like to point out that like I myself hold both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I think that Ethereum is a different take on what Bitcoin tried to do. And I'm very interested to see how they both progress. The fact that Bitcoin isn't doesn't have that, you know, Bitcoin 2.0 coming out like Ethereum does. On one hand, Ethereum may be better. And on the other hand, it may actually take a step back and this proof of stake may not work out how they planned. And yeah, so like exactly. And you've argued in the past that the energy cost associated with the mining of Bitcoin provides inherent value to it. And so that that's essentially the argument to try and bridge the economic and technical gaps from, you know, it's a secure currency with the blockchain and other aspects about Bitcoin. But at the same time, the reason that it has value is because at some point in time, energy was required in order to produce it. Now, in terms of cryptocurrency, you're talking about like actual energy in terms of like jewels and like electrical energy Yes. in order to mine it insert instead of what we traditionally think of as labor in order to make a product. But the concept still holds the same, even in proof of stake. Now it's wrapped up a little bit differently, but the idea is still inherently there that at some point work was done in order to give this arbitrary thing value, much in the same way that labor functions with a fiat currency. Absolutely. And I think it's really hard to really speculate on the potential when we don't understand fully 
what we can do with something. Energy capture is something that we are already woefully inefficient at. There's a lot of wasted energy that has in many cases been repurposed already to mine Bitcoin. I believe, I can't recall if it was ExxonMobil or Chevron, one of the large uh, oil companies um, has allowed um, some of the energy that it has that they've un been un unable to harness during their production processes. They've permitted that to be used to mine cryptocurrency, perhaps over time, uh, just as a Tesla regenerates energy with the breaks, we will find more creative solutions to recapture energy that is being inefficiently utilized to be able to run these networks. I think that's a, you know, an interesting thing to pay attention to moving forward, especially in terms of just the sheer energy in that we still have not from an engineering or physics perspective, really harnessed how to store energy in a battery, for example, for extended periods of time. Any battery that exists slowly loses energy over time. And so the idea that we can actually use some of that energy that is lost or otherwise unharnessable in order to actually do perform work, whether that's on cryptocurrency or whether that's, you know, rerouted energy to, you know, sustainable energy. And, you know, in terms of augmenting solar panels and powering cities, like our ability to tap into that is really a lot of lost potential across the board, whether that is from a technical perspective or a financial perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we're kind of building into is that, again, there's a dual answer to this question. I mean, I guess this was kind of two questions to begin with. Um, uh, within uh, re with regards to cryptocurrency, but I very much believe that some cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin in particular, which has a hard cap that is closely approaching, um, will probably be an inflationary asset. It will be viewed as an investment largely. It may be used to transact in certain cases, but I, I largely believe that as adoption increases, it will inflate in value, as we've already seen over the last several years. It has drastically increased in value. And uh, many people will uh, hold it rather than utilize it frequently. Um, actually, funny enough, uh, I, I didn't plan this, but this book sitting right here in front of me was actually purchased with Ethereum. This was uh, the first thing I ever purchased with Ethereum was uh, this uh, custom bound uh, copy of uh, Crime and Punishment. And um, the reason I was able to do that was because it was an asset that had inflated a lot. Yes. I could have perhaps gained more value in the future if I had continued to hold that Ethereum rather than spend that on this book. However, um, this book costed somewhere in the vein of like 70 something dollars uh, at current market value uh, at the time I purchased it in Ethereum, including gas fees. But ultimately it costed me $9 because that is was my cost basis um, before taxes uh, on the capital gains. But <laughs> Well, I think that's a perfect example of something that I'm... I would think is the most likely situation moving forward and what I would like to see happen, particularly with Bitcoin and Ethereum in that it is definitely a hedge against inflation in my opinion. But what I'm hopeful for is that it becomes a medium between other currencies. So as we currently have exchange rates all over the globe with various nations and it changes from one currency to the next, but to have a decentralized common currency that can be accepted in multiple different regions is a very exciting idea. 
from a pure neutrality standpoint and an ease of doing business in this global world that we're in. Yeah. And um, I, I think that we may see just adoption of a lot. The, uh, over time, I think the strong will stand out and the weak will fall apart. A lot of crypto is outright scams. There's no denying that. Um, it, it, they, it is just a quick get rich quick scam. It is a pump and dump. Um, but I like, for example, my web browser um, has been uh, that I've been using for the last two months. Um, pays me approximately the equivalent of four to six U.S. dollars in uh, value from their tokens. That um, from I, I permit them to serve me ads in exchange for these tokens. Um, they actually have a system in place where I can tip content creators with this token if those content creators, whether they're just on Twitter, whether they're on YouTube, are set up for it. And now with Elon Musk uh, purchasing Twitter and uh, his uh, association with uh, Dogecoin and investment in Dogecoin, he could, you know, we could see something within a few years, like Elon has a Dogecoin tip system built into Twitter where you can tip content creators in Dogecoin, which Dogecoin has no theoretical limit in how much can be minted. So it, uh, it, we, we could see the usage of a lot of different tokens in different areas. And um, I, I've already I've already seen some really interesting use cases for crypto. Um, there's actually like a um, company that buys uh, bunkers, old, uh, old nuclear missile silos in the United States and builds them into bunkers. And you can purchase a timeshare in these uh, in, in these bunkers, essentially, not not as a vacation, but like as a if things go south. And you need a place to escape to. Um, if you buy into their token and you hold a certain amount, you are guaranteed like six weeks or twelve weeks or whatever it is. Your your uh, Tio Twaki retreat in a former yeah, nuclear yeah. silo. I, was, I, was, I mean, it was really innovative of them, especially in people in the prepper community. Not, I mean, I guess there may be some overlap there, but you don't typically expect them to be um, focused on such a highly technical uh, adoption like that. They typically favor. Uh, you know, deviating away from modern technology uh, as a as a preventative measure and as a stopgap of sorts. I mean, that's that's a perfect example of the opportunities as an inflation hedge, in particular for cryptocurrencies at large. And I mean, it's still very much in its infancy, and there's so many different ways that it can be applied, and some of them are very likely to fail, but we're in a situation where we have the flexibility to try many, many different ways to yeah. use them. I do think it, there'll be a lot of benefits to us uh, as consumers and as creators, as uh, producers, whatever, whatever you are, I think there will be a lot of benefits. I also think that it will be an extreme nuisance to manage the number of uh, currencies that we have. If I can make a reference that uh, may not, everyone may not be able to relate to. I feel like it's like uh, when uh, certain, uh, MMORPGs, massive multiplayer online uh, role-playing games. Uh, after as they continue and they progress, they find themselves just creating new currencies over and over. And before you know it, some of these games that have been out for like ten years, they have like twenty different currencies that you have to manage because it can't just be gold and and gems. No, it has to be all these other things as well. Well, in particular, <laughs> especially with MMORPGs, you end up with these currency exchanges. Yeah. And that, that's essentially what I'm getting at yeah. with these cryptocurrencies is, you know, essentially Bitcoin could become that at some point in the future. And we'll just have to wait and see how these things evolve over time. Absolutely. But yeah, I just want to thank the viewer that gave us these great questions, which 
fed perfectly into what we wanted to talk about anyway. Frankly, uh, I, I'd like to think that we would have talked about mo- most of these things, even if you hadn't asked these questions, but perhaps not the cryptocurrency stuff, but the economic stuff and the inflation uh, side issues we were already planning on talking about. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope we were able to uh, you know provide some clarity to you on that. And uh, I would definitely encourage uh, anybody, if you have really tough questions, throw them our way, especially you know in these fields of uh, engineering, technology, manufacturing, uh, international policy, uh, international relations and e- economy. Yeah. And I mean, it's very much a, uh, broad sweeping strokes unless we have these kind of, you know, targeted questions from you as well. And I mean, if there definitely, if there's any topics or, you know, just like these questions we had today, um, this is exactly what we're here for and diving into the meat of this. Yeah. So expect, you know, like I said, some perhaps uh, sporadic uh, for a little while here as uh, Glenn gets settled into his new job and is going to be moving. Um, uh, so our episodes are going to be a little bit more infrequent, but um, I hope that, you know, we can continue to do this and continue to uh, get better at this and bring some uh, great guests on for you all and uh, have some great conversations. You can catch us on Spotify, on Uh, Apple and Google Podcasts and on YouTube, which is our primary platform. Uh, Please uh, drop a like and subscribe if you have not already. really helps us out. Um, We'd like to expand our reach to uh, people that have not been exposed to this kind of content before, and we can only do that with your help.